All right, last Wednesday we introduced the book of Philippians, and um, somebody from last week as way of review kind of helped me out. What's really the book of Philippians all about? All right, basically a love letter. And why would we want to call it a love letter, Michael? All right, so you know, you know the answer to this. There's nothing critical in the letter, really. Uh, there's no doctrinal principles really brought out. It's saying, you know, you need to understand the doctrine of baptism. Um, there's no um, corrective measures being done, such as he did with the church at Corinth. Uh, this is basically a letter of, of being thankful, uh, being uh, full of joy, and, and, and the love that he had for the church at Philippi. Uh, we did talk about how that there are a lot of joy stealers in our life, and we spent some time talking about how that it was, um, I've got to think for a second, how it was things, uh, things in life, how it was um, uh, people, worry, and I'm trying to think of the first one we said. That's what threw me off. I'm trying to think of the very first thing we said. Material things. Okay. And so, uh, and the book of Philippians, the outline of it works dealing with all these issues. And so as we go through the book, hopefully it will help us to overcome these joy stealers, if you will. And of course, I want to make mention of the fact, if you weren't here last Wednesday night, that Paul wrote this particular book while he was in prison. Uh, this is one of the prison epistles. He was awaiting trial to stand before Caesar to find out if he was going to live or die. And the entire time he was there, he was in his own home, but he was chained uh, to a a Roman soldier 24 hours a day, 52 days a week, or seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. Uh, That was a long, long day there for a minute. Um, But anyway, so always when I'm looking at the book of Philippians and I see the, the things that Paul is writing, I always think about the fact, here's a man who's writing this, and he's not in the best situation in the world. Um, Sometimes when somebody's having trouble and you tell them, uh, well, you know, look at the bright side of things and and try to be happy about this, and they'll say, well, look at your situation, look at mine. I'm in a terrible situation, and you're telling me I need to be happy? You need to be in my shoes for a while. Well, here's a man who is in a bad situation, but yet he's still telling everybody, you know, you need to find the joy that you need to have in Jesus Christ. And so well, that's the kind of thing that we're dealing with in this particular book. And last week we got down through, well, we didn't finish verse 1. I, I told somebody we, we got through first verse 1, but we didn't. We talked about how the letter was from Paul and how that Timothy was with him and they were servants of Jesus Christ. And uh, we spent some time talking about what the definition of saints is. And uh, we talked about what the word Christ means and what the word Jesus means. And we've already talked about the city of Philippi and how it was named after Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. And so I don't believe we got down to the last three words of chapter 1 and verse 1, and that is bishops and deacons. So let's talk about that just for a moment. What is a bishop? An elder? Okay. So what you're telling me then is that that's a word that could be used interchangeably. That bishop and elder are words that are interchangeable, okay? Now, in the religious world today, um, bishops are sometimes given some kind of preeminence that they are a higher church leader than an elder. But a bishop in New Testament times was the exact same uh, person that was an elder. Um, 
there's, there's three different words in the uh, Greek New Testament that is used to describe those who are the leaders of the church. There's episkopos, which is bishop, and that literally means overseer. It means the one in charge. That's the idea behind the phrase bishop, okay? Then there was the idea of elder, which comes from the Greek word presbyteros, and that was to signify that this person was not a novice, that they have experience. Typically, uh, those who are elders in the church are older members. You don't see too many 20-year-old elders. Um, but typically, it's someone who has, not necessarily by age because they're old, but because of age and experience in being a Christian. They're an elder Christian. Not so much that they're just gray-headed, but they are well-read in God's Word. And then the other word that is used for uh, leaders in the church is poeme. And poeme means shepherd, okay? And that's the word that we get the word pastor from, all right? So they are called in the New Testament, they are called uh, bishops, they are called elders, and they are called pastors or shepherds. And the idea, of course, is the bishop signifies rank of office, Elder signifies uh, rank of experience, and then uh, shepherds describes what the elder's supposed to be doing, and that is shepherding the flock. Yes, Mike? Mm-hmm. Pres- presbyteros, which is the word where they get presbytery from, and, and the Presbyterian church is, was originally founded on the idea of having an elder system, okay, and that's why they referred to themselves as the Presbyterian church. Um, they um, made a big distinction about their elders and their congregations. Yes, presbyteros is, not, not presbyterian, and not presbytery, but presbyteros, the Greek word. But when you see it in the English, you're going to see the word elder. When you see the word elder in the New Testament, that's the Greek word presbyteros. Okay? But that's where that word comes from. And um, all three of these are the same... Uh, office. Uh, I've used this illustration before, but I like it because it works out so well. But when I was preaching in Knoxville, Tennessee, many moons ago, uh, the congregation there had three elders. And it was very easy to illustrate that those three elders all had the same office because we had an elder by the name of Bob Huff. We had an elder by the name of Ed Burroughs. And we had an elder by the name of Richard Priodi. And so I could use all three of them this way. You've got Bishop Bob, you've got <laughs> Elder Ed, and Pastor Priyoti, okay? And, so, and all three of those were, were true. Now, I know in the religious world today that oftentimes we hear someone referred to as a pastor, uh, that you, they think of the preacher. But that's not biblical whatsoever. Uh, preachers in the New Testament are just simply called preachers. And when the Bible talks about pastors in the... Uh, New Testament is talking about the elder, the office of the elder, and um, and it's it's not a good uh, way to refer to the preacher that way. Um, it's funny now that I am an elder in this congregation. Someone asked me if I'm the pastor. I can say, well, yes, uh, but also clarify myself because they're thinking of me as the preacher, not as the one of the elders. And um, of course, those of you who've been here a long time know that when we first bought this property, that it was being used as a church by a group. And they had, printed, they had stenciled out here on the curb out here, um, pastor in one spot, and 
right next to it, it said First Lady. Okay? Which, historically, historically in African-American churches, they'll have the preacher called the pastor and his wife be called the First Lady. That didn't happen much in, in um, white churches, but that was very popular in, in black churches. And so when we moved into this building and we we're trying to figure out what to do about it, of course, we painted over it. But I explained to people that we could use it here. That we could put, let the, the first woman that gets here, let her be the first lady. And the second one that gets here, we can say, that's the one that got past her. <laughs> See, there's, there's ways to work it all out. But anyway. Um, but any questions about what it means when it says here, uh, when Paul is addressing the bishops at Philippi, who's he addressing? Do you have a question or do you have a comment? Yeah, and that's the way it is in a lot of religious organizations. Here's what happened. You know, we'll chase this, chase this a little bit. Originally, when the church was instituted by Jesus Christ and started on the day of Pentecost, go through the New Testament, it's obvious that um, it's independent congregations with elders. That's how the church was governed. But, as churches do, and as... Um, I've done this in churches. If, if you would have meetings, sometimes the uh, eldership would have a meeting, and in order for it to be done in decency and order, they had to follow some type of routine, and someone had to be in charge of that meeting. And so you might have the elder in charge for that month. Well, as time went on, they decided that uh, the same man would be the one in charge, and you had almost what you would call a head elder. Um, I'm very cognitive of the fact that somebody might perceive me to be a head elder. So you can ask Frankie and Glenn, I do everything I can to make sure that that's never brought up that way. If there's an announcement that needs to be made or some other decision that the elders made, I make sure I'm never the one who makes that announcement because I don't want ever to be perceived as the one who's done that because we're all three equal. But as time went on, that head elder got more and more uh, authority. And they gave him a different title. They gave him the bishop of the church and had elders under him. Well, when there were more than one church in the city, eventually somebody became the one that was head over those churches, and they took the uh, thing of bishop. Then as time went on, they started coming up with archbishop that was over a territory and that kind of thing. Um, And so that's that's how that name got corrupted. But you're right, not only among African-American churches, but the Catholic church is set up that way. Uh, there's other denominations that do it that way, but the, the New Testament teaches independent, autonomous, which means self-governing churches with elders, plural, for the oversight of that congregation. And that's the biblical plan, and the, the other is just a corruption as time went on. I hope that answers your question or adds to your comment. Any other question or comment about bishops, elders, or pastors? Episcopos or presbyteros or poeme. You got, that's going to be on the test now. I hope you remember those Greek words, what they mean. All right, look at the next word. It says, and, oh, but first of all, before I get away from this, while I'm thinking about it, why did he address the bishops here? Which is interesting. If you go back and look at all the other epistles that Paul wrote, this is the only time he's ever done this. So why do you think in this case, he addresses the bishops directly or the elders directly. It's all conjecture, but I like to think about stuff like this. I like to sit and ponder, wonder why things were done the way that they were. 
He, he addresses it to everyone when he says, the saints, that's the whole church. But here is the first, only time he addresses the leadership directly. No, but uh, at the same time, churches of size, they would have elders. Because that was the plan. Now, we don't know which churches had elders and which don't, doesn't. And I would not think that Philippi was the only place that he wrote that didn't have elders, especially after he told Timothy to point elders in, all, in every church and gave him the guidelines to do that. And that's the ultimate uh, sign of growth when the church can appoint elders. So it may be that none of these other epistles that he wrote, there was elders there. But I think it's highly unlikely. But it is interesting, this is the only place where he mentions it. Yes, Chip. Okay. So maybe he addresses them directly because of there, there's good leadership going on. Um, maybe because of the fact that uh, he cares so much about this congregation and he has a, a, such a wonderful relationship with the, with the eldership there. You can't have a great relationship with the church and not have a great relationship with the, el- with the eldership. And so he has some fondness for them. Another thing sometimes people throw out is that as we're going to discover, the church at Philippi gave Paul just tons of money. I mean, that's the way he survived on his missionary trips. Most of every, well, really all the money he got, he either got by working as a tent maker or he got the money from the church at Philippi. And so who would kind of be in charge of that, seeing that happen? It would be the eldership because they make the final decision about the distribution of funds within the church. So maybe that's why he's addressing. But all we're doing there is guessing. But I just think it's interesting. We need to point out that, that you know, the other epistles doesn't have this designation. All right, the next word that comes up uh, after the word and is the word deacons. And we're all familiar with what a deacon is. It's a servant in the church, and we have some in our midst tonight. And uh, they do a good job here. Um, it's interesting, the word for deacons there is a transliteration of the Greek word deaconos, which is simply means servant. Uh, the New Testament refers to, as, refers to the church leadership position as deaconos, and also refers to someone who is a servant being deaconos. So it's exactly the same word. So how in the world can you make a distinction, say in this verse, that Paul is not talking to just servants in the church, but instead is talking to the office of the deacon in the church. Because the, the word's the same. There's no distinction made. Or for that matter, let me put it like this. So you know how you, how you think when you study God's word. When you see the word deacon in the New Testament as you're reading, and you see the word servant in the New Testament as you're reading, once again... It is exactly the same word. So why did the translators use deacon in one spot and not use servant or use servant in one spot and not use deacon? Okay. All right. What, what you said, and what you said really the same thing without realizing it. Because what you said, even though you didn't mouth these words out of your mouth, I think you were thinking these. It's all about context. How does it fit with the context? Okay. For example, in the Bible... There is a woman by the name of Phoebe who is described as, literally in the Greek, a deaconess. And there are some who will say, well, that shows you right there that women can be deacons. No. All it means is that she's a servant. She can't be a deacon. Why? Well, because if you look at the requirements for a deacon, she does not fit that. So just because she was called a deacon or a deaconess in the New Testament uh, doesn't make her a deacon. It makes her a servant. 
And so anytime you see those, two, see, those, see those two words used, deacon or servant, you need to decide within the context, is it talking about someone who's just a servant? Or is it talking about someone who is, actually holds that office? Now, sometimes you'll see the word servant, as we have in verse 1 here, uh, that is not actually, the, in the King James it says servant, but that's not what the word is in the Greek. The word in the Greek is doulos, which means slave. And so... Uh, if you took literally what the text says, if you were uh, translated in English, then change it back to Greek, you would have Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus, bishops and servants. And so that doesn't fit. But if you understand that the word servant there in the King James is doulos, which means slave, and then the word for deacon there is the word uh, deaconos, then you understand that there's two different things going on here. Paul says, I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. And then he addresses those who are called servants in the church. And by context, since Karen says joined with the bishops, you have the conjunction and, which ties two things together, more than likely it's talking about the official office. Okay? hope I didn't lose you there, but that's the kind of thing that we think about. But any questions or comments on that? All right, very good. All right, let's look at verse 2. It's about time we move to verse 2, you're saying. Paul says, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when people wrote letters back then, they followed a simple formula, and this is a part of the formula. There was always the, at the beginning, as we talked about, because these are scrolls, these aren't books, these aren't letters you unfold, these were scrolls, you always announce in the first section who wrote the letter and who the letter was to. So right off the bat, people know this is from who and this is to me. Okay, from whom and this is to me. Then the second formula it would follow, it will always have some type of greeting. The Greek... The Greek and Roman greeting was the word charis, or great, or grace. Oh, I can't talk tonight. Uh, the Greek word charis, which means grace to you, okay? And if you were writing to a Jew, you would use the Hebrew word for peace, which you still hear today on TV and whatnot, the word shalom, okay? All right. Now, Paul, in this particular greeting, uses both the Greek greeting, charis, and uses the Hebrew greeting, Shalom, uh, though it's not in Hebrew in the text, it's actually Greek in the text too, but he uses the Greek word for shalom, which is eerie, all right? Now, here's what I want you to think about. First of all, the obvious thing, why would he use both greetings in a letter? All right, talking to two kinds of people. Uh, he used his, uses the Roman greeting. And he uses the Jewish greeting because there was in the church at Philippi both Greeks, Romans, and Jews. But some people think that he does this also because he's combining a wonderful, wonderful thing. First of all, uh, the word grace was a word that people used back then. Um, it's a word that we even developed into our English language that we don't use much anymore, uh, the word charm. Um, there was a time that when people met people and they would greet one another and they would um, want to make sure they understood how pleasant it was to meet someone, they would use the phrase, well, I'm charmed. Now, we don't say that anymore because we don't have fans that were fluttering. So, well, I'm charmed. That's good. That goes way back. But the idea of grace was saying, um, I, want, I want to make sure that you understand uh, that this is like a wonderful opportunity for me. This is... Uh, a gift for me to be able to be in your presence, okay? 
All right, so that's, that's the, the original way of doing it. But we know that as we, the plan of salvation unfolded and God's scheme of redemption unfolded, this word became even having even more meaning. If someone was just reading this letter that had no background in religion and saw the word grace, they would think, well, that's just meaning that he, he wishes them well and he's charmed that he gets to talk to them and that kind of thing. But someone who has a religious background and they see the word grace, it takes on a whole new meaning whatsoever. And so there's a discussion. Is Paul just doing a little formal greeting here? Or is he emphasizing the fact that he wants the grace of God upon them? All right, now the word peace. The Hebrew word for peace, shalom. The word peace there does not mean the absence of turmoil, the absence of war, the absence of conflict as we think of peace today. But when you said shalom, and it even means this today, and if you talk to a Jew and he says shalom to you, he wants what is the very, very best for you. He's wishing you the very best. He wants you not only not just to have turmoil in your life, he wants your life to be the very best that it can be. Now, if you take those two things, God's grace, you truly have the peace that passeth understanding. It's only because of God's grace that you can have the very best thing you can ever have, and that's salvation. And so people down through the years have thought about, you know, Paul's making a greeting here. That's a very common greeting. But to those people who were at the church at Philippi, when they saw those words, it meant something totally different to them as it should mean to us today. When we hear the word grace, if you've been a member of the church very long, that word immediately conjures up something totally different than if you were just saying uh, some guy on the street, um, you know, I bid you grace or whatever. We don't use that phrase anymore, but people used to say that a lot. Totally different meaning for those of us in Christ Jesus. And he's already established that we're in Christ Jesus. In fact, he says it right here um, in the text. It says, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not a typical reading when you gave somebody that in a letter. And once again, so this takes on a totally different meaning than it did to somebody who just hears it in everyday usage. Any questions or comments on that? Okay. Well, he goes on, and I brought this out in my... Um, Lesson Sunday, but he says, I thank God, I thank my God in verse 3, upon every remembrance of you. In other words, any time that he thought of them, that was always good thoughts. And um, we spent some time talking about that Sunday, but uh, the reason why they were always good thoughts was because Paul was, had made the decision that he was only going to think about the good things that happened to him in Philippi, even though a lot of bad things happened. And so when he replayed that memory tape in his head of all of the things he remembered about Philippi, he only thought about the good things and was thankful for it. Even the bad things, if he thought about them, he was thankful for it because of what happened as a result of it. Here was a man who could see the silver lining in every cloud, as the old saying goes. So every member, a memory he has of them uh, is good things uh, because he was able to thank God for it. We normally don't thank God for the bad things, though. Paul, when he thanked God for the bad things, he says, yeah, I was thrown in jail, but a Philippian jailer was converted. Yeah, I was thrown out of town, uh, run out of town, but I got to extend the gospel to other places. So he always looked at the, the positive side of things, and that's we as Christians also. So it says, always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests with joy. 
<clears throat> and then he gets to a very significant verse that ties a lot of different parts of, of the epistles together. He says, For your sharing or your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. The word uh, there for fellowship is koame, and it means to take part together, it means to share, it means to uh, be partners. Uh, it means to work together, and it's a good word to describe uh, the fellowship that we enjoy in the church. Uh, because we are Christians and we have fellowship, that means we're partners. Uh, because we are uh, Christians and have fellowship, that means we share. Uh, when we have a potluck and we call it a fellowship meal, the reason why it's called a fellowship meal is because somebody will bring a pot and share it with other people, okay? Um, it all deals around the idea that we have a partnership. Well, when Paul uses koime here in fellowship, he is really stressing the idea that they were partners together. Partners, from the fir- uh, partners in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, I want you to read some things that Paul wrote about the church at Philippi uh, in other places. Open your Bibles up, if you will, for, to Second um, Corinthians chapter 8. Now, in Second Corinthians... the Paul is dealing with the problems there at the church at Corinth. And one of the things that he's trying to stress to them is that they need to do a better job in their giving and how that they need to be willing, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, my mind's gone blank, in, in, chapter, in 1 Corinthians where it talks about um, how that we need to give upon the first day of the week. Well, in 2 Corinthians, he's reemphasizing that. But if you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I want you to notice, and we know from, uh, that this is talking about the church at Philippi because uh, it was a part of the churches of Macedonia. Remember, Philippi was in Macedonia. I want you to listen to what he tells the church at Corinth to try to get them to do better. He says, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 8, Moreover, moreover brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. That's kind of hard to understand in the King James, but what is he saying about the church at Philippi? What is he kind of shaming the church at Corinth with? Okay, beyond their building, what? All right, they excel in the grace of giving even though they don't have anything. He's basically saying this is a church that if there ever was a church that couldn't afford to do something, it was this church, but yet they did it. Where he goes on in verse 3, For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying with us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering of their saints. Then he nails it in verse the whole point and reason why they were able to do this. Look at verse 5 and find out why they were able to give so liberally even though they were so poor. What was their, what was the mindset that they had? Verse 5, and this they did, not as we hope, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. They had first given themselves to Jesus Christ. And once they've done that, everything else was easy. 
Now, if you turn over just a few, well, just one page over my Bible. Notice, um, oh, here he is, chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, notice what he says next to the church of Corinth. After going through the discussion about the giving and a bunch of other things about the greatness of Christ and whatnot, um, notice what he says to the church at Corinth. Remember, he spent some time working with the church at Corinth. He was their preacher there, the apostle there. Notice what he says in verse 8. I robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do you service. When I was present with you and wanted, I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied, and in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so will I keep myself. He's basically telling the church at Corinth, you didn't want to support me? Well, you didn't support me, but thanks be to God, the church in Macedonia did. Because they sent time and time again unto my necessity. And um, I read all that just to point out the fact that when he says here in verse uh, 1 and verse 5, for your partnership or fellowship in the gospel from the first day unto now, he's talking about a group of people who unselfishly gave to him and gave to him and gave to him. In fact, look over in the same book over in chapter 4 and verse 16. That's the passage that popped in my head a minute ago that I quoted, but I can tell you where it was, where he brings up another city. He was working in the city of Thessalonica. And so what does he tell the church at Philippi? He says, beginning at verse 15, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity. Now, years ago, it's not too bad now, and I'm very thankful for uh, what the church does for me here, but there was a time many years ago that there was a lot of churches in the Church of Christ who thought preachers should never, ever be paid. And um, sometimes they use Paul as an illustration. You know, you should just go out and get your own job, and you shouldn't worry about um, being tied to just, you know, working with the church and getting paid from the church. And... Um, Use Paul as an example. Well, that falls flat on the face of the issue because Paul talks about how other churches supported him while he was working at churches. Now, this idea, funny, in the restoration movement that preachers shouldn't get paid, you know where that came from? It didn't come from him personally, but it, became, but it was the example of him, Alexander Campbell. Alexander Campbell never took any money from anybody all those years he was preaching. But here's the thing people don't know about Alexander Campbell. He was a very wealthy man. He married well. He married a very rich... Huh? What'd you say? <laughs> well, I did, but not in, money, not in money sense. In fact, I told you this before, but you know what Karen's father told me when I asked her to... went to ask him if I could marry her. I was a proper gentleman. He said, yeah, I don't mind if you marry her, but just keep in mind you're going to be in debt the rest of your life. He literally told me that. <laughs> he really told me that. But anyway, the Alexander Campbell, he had, he had all the money. He had, he had a huge plantation. 
You can still go up there to West Virginia to the town of Bethany and, and, and see his plantation. There's a college there now, Bethany College. And it's a very interesting tour if you ever go up there. You can see where his study was, where it's a rec- octagon-shaped building where he never sat down. He had surrounded by books, and he always stood at his desk and moved around. But anyway, my point is he had all kinds of money and uh, even had wallpaper that came from Thomas Jefferson, that kind of thing. Uh, but my point in all this is that... Um, Preachers have the right to be paid, and there's not a thing wrong with paying preachers. And I'm very, very thankful, though I might not write you an epistle as nice as this one, but I'm very, very thankful for what the church does for me and for my family. I, I really, really do appreciate it. Um, but notice he says, from, the, from your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, I'm going to quiz you just a little bit here. I kind of brought this up a little bit in the sermon Sunday, and I brought it up at the beginning of the class uh, last week. But he says from the very beginning of the gospel, talking about when he first started preaching in Philippi, until now they have been supporting him. If you take both those bookends, the very beginning and the situation he's in now, what is he talking about? All right. Let's uh, talk about at the very beginning. At the very first time Paul preached the sermon and converted the very first person, how was this exhibited? How did the church, as soon as it was established, with the very first convert, how was this established? That's my... There you go. She fed him, housed him, took care of him the whole time he worked there in Philippi. The church evidently started meeting in the church, uh, I mean, in Lydia's house. But my point is, Paul was preaching in the, in the city of Philippi, but he didn't have to pay rent. He didn't have to buy food. Lydia was a wealthy woman, and she took care of him. She was a seller of purple. You know how much that purple goes for these days? Yeah. Sometimes, especially if it rains, boy, it's a lot of purple. Um, but anyway, from the very first convert, there was somebody who was supporting his work. All right, now I'll take it all the way. Now Paul's in prison. Now, there's that word, right now, you're doing the same thing. So what's happening right now? We don't know how all the money was used, but we know from, as we read through the book of Philippians here, that not only did they send him money, but they sent him something else. Remember, I brought this up last week. They sent a man. His name was Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. In fact, some people think this is what started the whole occasion of this letter is because he was sending Epaphroditus back. Not because he didn't want him, but Epaphroditus was sick and he didn't need to stay there with Paul if he was sick. So he's the one that brought this letter more than likely back to the church at Philippi and part of the explanation why Epaphroditus was coming back. He just didn't say, hey, I don't like this job. He, he got very ill. And when we get to that section, um, I want you to be thinking about the fact that here was Epaphroditus living with the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, and he was very sick, almost to the point of death, and Paul was sending him back because he was so sick, almost to the point of death. Hey, you got an Apostle with you. What's the deal here? Let's, let's lay on some hands or something. Now, be thinking about that. I'm going to talk about it now. But when we get to that section, I want you to be able to talk to me about that, okay? All right? So, from the very beginning... From the first day until now, and um, I tell you what, 
Verse 6, I've got a lot of stuff I want to talk about it in there. And so let's just stop right here, because as soon as I get started in verse 6, we're going to run out of time, and I'll leave you hanging on the thoughts there. But any questions or comments before we uh, dismiss class? Okay, I hope somebody learned something tonight. If you didn't, I did the best I could. But anyway, but we're dismissed. Thank you for your comments and your questions.